You're listening to FemWonk. I'm your host, Katie Davey, and today we're continuing with our theme of back to school, and we chat with Connor Spencer, who is the chair of Students for Consent Culture, about the landscape of sexual violence across Canada on campuses. Um, It's a pretty detailed conversation. I got a lot out of it. I hope you do too. Um, Without further ado, let's get into it. Connor, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, And to kick us off, actually, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself a bit more and chatting a bit about your organization. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So my name is Connor. I use she, her pronouns. um, And I'm the National Chair for Students for Consent Culture Canada, which I will refer to as SFCC from here on out. And we're basically an organization that's dedicated to supporting anti-sexual violence advocacy and activism on campuses across so-called Canada. Uh, And often what that looks like is we serve kind of as a hub of resources, tools, community, and institutional memory, basically, for student engagement. Um, And we also do some advocacy at the provincial and federal levels to create better policy practices and accountability measures to protect students but like really our overall goal as an organization is to build relationships of solidarity um, with various social justice movements and organizations to create cultures of consent um, in our communities and across our country and how long has sfcc been around for we're a baby. Yeah. We officially <laughs> like have been like legally recognized as an entity um, by the government at least for um, it will be a year in November. Oh, amazing. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I ask actually because I think about my personal experience um, on campuses, I guess, five ish plus years ago. Um, and that, so I actually had the opportunity to be the president of the student union at UNB mm. in Fredericton. And at that point, the conversation around um, sexual violence on campus was really just getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an organization like yours, I think would have been so um, really so monumental in helping students and student unions who are kind of engaging in that advocacy work on their campuses really like navigate um, the space and navigate, you know, best practices and things like that. Um, We were, so my year as president, it was one of our top priorities to um, lobby our university to implement a um, sexual violence um, policy broadly. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything at the time. Um, and yeah, very much a lot of the times felt like we were kind of just shooting in the dark and just hoping for the best. So I'm so, yeah, I'm really happy to see the work that you folks are doing and, and to really see the conversation growing so much across the country. So again, congrats for that. Thank you. And yeah, I'll say your, your story is not like, that's one that we hear all the time from folks and on, and a lot of us on, on our team, like I myself had a very similar story of, I was a grassroots activist and then uh, became involved in the student union. And similarly, the whole point of um, this group of humans working together is to exactly what you say, create tools that we can provide to the folks that have been put into these positions of relative power on campus as student advocates um, to make sure that they're able to do the most effective survivor centric trauma informed work that they can. So help me frame what the kind of the issues look like on campus now. Like, as I said, been been away from campus for a few years now. Um, so help me kind of frame and understand um, what folks are dealing with on a day to day on campuses across the country. 
Um, when we like think about sexual violence on campus, like one of the main things uh, that we hear about a lot um, that's covered in the media is uh, talks around like the red zone, um, athletics, Greek life, frosh as kind of that that is what we think of when we think of sexual violence on campus often, or that's the image that tends to be portrayed both within media, but also by um, post-secondary administrators, I would argue. Um, but one of the things that like, I really like to remind folks is that sexual violence is actually a system um, and a symptom of like larger power imbalances that already exist on campus and is a reflection of harmful ideologies that exist on campus. So an example of that would be um, the fetishization of women of color in classrooms and non-binary students in classrooms. Um, that's linked to sexual harassment that's experienced on campus. There's also a huge conversation um, going on that we're just starting to hear about in the media, but has been going on for campuses in a long time um, in kind of grassroots networks is um, sexually violent and or harassing professors um, that exist on campuses. And so this is this is a conversation that's um, ramping up, uh, especially like in the last year or so. Um, and so this is just kind of like one of the things that I want to like really hit home is that we can't talk about what sexual violence on campus looks like without talking about the power structures that exist that uphold, perpetuate, but also dismiss the sexual violence that occurs on campuses. Yeah. And one of the, I think, really critical pieces of that, and, and I'd love to know your thoughts, is is really the fact that our post-secondary institutions really are very kind of colonial systemic mm -hmm. institutions. And so I would assume that some of these challenges um, based, as you mentioned, on not only the power dynamics in a system like that, but the power dynamics of, you know, folks of a certain socioeconomic standing and those who have access to education um, or, you know, are tempting to have that access um, would just almost augment those challenges. One of the main things that we need to remember, right, is that um, sexual violence is not the disease, so to speak. It's the symptom. Um, and it's a symptom of basically the white supremacist, capitalist, colonialist, ableist patriarchy that we live in. And that when, if we're honest about it, that higher education in this country was created um, to uphold, right? Like our, our education was not made to break down these power structures. Our education, its history was to uphold these power structures. So of course this work is going to uh, be very difficult <laughs> and also is going to like these issues, the symptoms of this larger power system is going to disproportionately affect folks um, with marginalized identities on campus. And like, that's something that we have to make sure is centered in our work moving forward. Like, especially with the shift in conversation that's happened with the kind of um, what I call the internet iteration of the Me Too movement that happened uh, in 2017, we're seeing um, a lot more prevalence of these conversations on campuses, but we also, as a result, saw a lot more um, white women in uh, kind of like media prominent positions um, around this conversation. But really, we need to like remember that these movements have always existed on our campuses and they have primarily been like led by women of color on a grassroots basis, like protecting their own communities um, as one of the communities that's the most impacted on campus. And so it's really important for us as advocates doing this work that we make sure that that history and also reality on our campuses is really, really centered um, and that we constantly do our work trying to combat this upholding of this larger power structure that sexual violence is a symptom of. Yeah. So I, I'd love to dig into that a, a bit more. So I'm going to put a pin there for a quick <laughs> second <laughs> um, just to kind of add something. I The survey of first-year students um, from 2018 showed that 
uh, by and large across the country, um, about 65% of students um, are are women compared to 35% men. It's not clear to me if the survey um, has an option for kind of non-gender binary, um, but that is so interesting and fascinating to me. I didn't actually realize the dramaticness of that split, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's really interesting when you consider in, in many cases the I guess history of post-secondary institutions really was was male dominant for male students, and for that shift to have occurred with, I assume, very little consideration given to what that actually means for the mm-hmm. institutions. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about that this morning as I saw those numbers and as I was considering um, our conversation here today. So I think yeah, it's just an important kind of stat that I saw. Um, but I would love to dig in a bit more to what you were talking about, about really supporting um, the grassroots uh, communities and the marginalized communities that are doing this work. And I'd love to know kind of what that looks like from your perspective and like what types of resources you folks are working on. I think the point that you brought up uh, with the kind of statistic is an important one. And I'll just give an example and a link um, of something else that I think uh is relevant, which is the whole um, difference between having a diverse (laughs) organization and an inclusive organization. Just because you have um, more women at a post-secondary institution, like as students, does not mean it's necessarily a feminist institution. Just because they're there does not mean that they are like welcomed or included or valued the same way, right? Um, So that's like one of the things that we have to be able to combat, especially when administrators use that as a like, oh, well, this program is majority women, so therefore it's a feminist program. That's not how that works. Um, And so that actually, what I just did is kind of like an example of one of the ways that um, we try to create tools. Uh, One of the projects actually that we're working on right now um, is a zine that we are lovingly referring to as our shit admin says zine, (laughs) Um, (laughs) where we are documenting all the horrible things that administrators have said to us behind closed doors as um, student survivor activists um, and coming up with responses basically for when these things get said. because uh, so many of us have been in rooms, and I'm sure you probably had this experience as well as a student advocate um, of either being shut down in a like particularly dismissive way or literally being told something false um, or that something can't happen because of um, law, a provincial law or federal law um, and coming up with the the responses basically um, to have so that student advocates have that on hand to be able to support their arguments. Um, behind closed doors. And then the other way that, uh, like another way that we're trying to support um, grassroots folks is um, one of our main projects that we're actually working on right now is um, a research report into sexually violent and or harassing professors. Um, And this is basically to be able to provide some sort of empirical evidence, so to speak, or just basically just like good research that backs up what student activists have been saying um, in rooms and at protests and um, on bathroom walls for ages um, to be able to like have something that folks can bring to a room with them to back up their arguments. Um, We also just try and kind of sort through um, all the various like resources and try and um, put it together in a way that is uh, accessible towards students. And so all of our tools that we create is uh, are for students specifically. And so that makes them take on a different shape than they would necessarily coming from other organizations who might also be trying to target university administrators or so on and so forth, right, with their work. So 
that's kind of like one of the ways that we try and um, support the grassroots work is really centering um, the student survivor, student advocate um, who will be using these tools because all of us on their, our team were those humans. Like we were the grassroots act, like we were doing this work on our campuses. And so we know what we would have liked to have um, while we were there. Um, and so we're trying to create that now. But one of the things that I think um, is really important uh, in this conversation around like supporting folks who are doing the work um, is I found like I've had a lot of people uh, reach out to me saying and especially white women um, reaching out to me saying that they want to start something and like often the first thing that um, I say is like okay cool but like have you like looked into what's already happening on your campus like are you sure that you're not just recreating um, labor like that you're not um, taking funds away from like is there an organization already there on your campus or a group already on your campus doing work that you can join um what would that look like having that kind of sort of conversation as well um is is very important so those are those are just kind of like some some very broad examples of uh things that we kind of do to try and uh support students another one is that because we are um a officially like incorporated nonprofit, um, we have more of a, a status about us um, than grassroots groups. And so we get invited into spaces that grassroots groups would not uh, normally. And so we try and bring folks with us always into whatever rooms that we get invited to, to make sure that their voices are heightened. Just as you were kind of referencing all of those different types of supports, I was, like you said, kind of going back to my personal experience and thinking like mm -hmm. what type of role um, those supports would have played uh, for both me and, and my team and the folks on, on our campus. So um, that's really exciting. I like I really like that approach. I think, as you said, like having that student centered approach rather than just being like, hello, here are the documents, like <laughs> comb through them. <laughs> right. Because that just doesn't work. That doesn't support anybody. Um, exactly. Yeah. Like I find university administrators often um, belittle students on committees or working groups for not being lawyers or not being policy experts. Totally. And so like what we're trying to do is basically give folks what they need to be able to be taken seriously in these rooms, because it's a really horrible thing to have to like comb through 30 pages of policy jar jargon and like not know what you should be looking for. Oh, totally. And like you said, like when administrators kind of, yeah, like almost gaslight you in a sense, like... Mm -hmm. As somebody who's never really been in that situation before, it like in that kind of power situation, you just would mm -hmm. assume that what they're saying is true and that they have no nefarious intent, which <laughs> not always the case. As we think about folks like heading back to school kind of broadly, um, I guess what why is this conversation so important in in the kind of back to school landscape? And I know that's a wide generalization of of the timeline, but um, tell me a bit about about that and why kind of ramping up this conversation is important for folks who um, may for the first time be on a post secondary campus or are returning um, to to that environment. Yeah, for sure. So it's it's basically important for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the main ones is that we are basically entering what's what I referred to earlier, which is the red zone. Um, and basically some statistics show that uh, over 50% of campus sexual assaults occur basically between August and November. So there's a lot of attention given to this. Um, and a lot of it, the attention is uh kind of framed in a way of how to like how do we best inform students how to protect themselves from sexual assault um, and often that looks like how do we like 
tell straight white women to make sure they don't get too drunk. Um, and there's less of a focus on how to inform students uh, not to perpetuate sexual violence or even to recognize what sexual violence is. Um, and uh, that kind of like goes at the root of the cause rather than um, like a preventative strategy type thing. And also one that doesn't really have an intersectional approach. So, I mean, like really the reality with the state of like sex ed from kindergarten to grade 12 across the country is that for a lot of students, the first time that they have access to education information on sexual violence, consent and sexual health like, is going to be at post-secondary, um, even though most of them statistically will already be sexually active. Um, so that's kind of why this back to school period is like really crucially important for education around consent and sexual violence, because this is kind of the moment that um, education can help, uh, especially new students, identify if um, they themselves have experienced sexual violence, if they themselves have perpetuated sexual violence, and just what are the skills and tools for how to ask for continuous enthusiastic consent. I think what you just said is so important, like figuring out, like allowing and empowering folks to figure out if they've experienced sexual violence or perpetuated it. I feel like that's not at all a conversation that happens kind of in the mainstream. You just very much have people with in the mainstream, at least with such a narrow view of what sexual violence is. Um, and that really, again, puts the onus on somebody who may have experienced a form of sexual violence to almost internalize that and not understand really why they might be feeling the certain way that they're feeling or how to seek help for that because, you know, it's not necessarily what mainstream has depicted sexual violence as. Um, I'm, I, I would assume that that is, again, particularly important for those folks, as you said, like entering that campus environment for for perhaps the first time. Um, yeah, I, I think that's so important. And that's such an important conversation to be having. Yeah. And I think that's one of the main things that we're missing in this in this really crucial period is that opportunity to also figure out um, if you yourself have perpetuated harm, because I think um, a really important uh point that's missing in a lot of sexual violence education is that we all are capable of perpetuating harm and probably will in our lives perpetuate harm when you think about the society that has raised us to not be nice to each other like you know what I mean like we have not been raised in a society that values consent and it's something that we have to like actively learn um, and so we shouldn't like when you focus on prevention rather than on um, like prevention in the sense of like how to protect yourself um, rather than how not to perpetuate sexual violence, like the results are going to stagger significantly, I would say. And so that's why we kind of really try and um, push a focus on consent education that also really teaches folks how to unlearn um, kind of a, a, a disvaluing of consent um, in relationships, both inside and outside of the Talk to me a bit about um, the advocacy work you folks are doing surrounding the Manitoba provincial election, because I feel like perhaps that really encompasses a lot of what we've we've just chatted about. So the uh, Manitoba election is happening um, in early September, so like a week and a half. Um, and we have basically four demands uh, of the parties um, to make in order to support survivors in the province. So the first demand is to modernize and update FIPA, which is the provincial privacy legislation. Because right now, the way that the provincial uh, privacy legislation, which is basically the same in all provinces, um, is that you can't be told the result of a complaint if the respondent is uh, an employee of the university. That needs to be changed. Uh, two is to review the kindergarten to grade 12 sex ed curriculum. 
Three is to create a prevention strategy for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls based on the calls to justice in the uh, final report of the inquiry. Um, and number four is to make mandatory sexual violence sensitivity training for all provincial judges, because that's where a majority of sexual violence cases actually get heard is in the provincial court. So, yeah. So basically, like with those four demands, we're encouraging Manitobans to vote with survivors and vote for candidates that support those demands. What um, type of luck have you folks had engaging with the parties like and just local candidates? Yeah. So um, there was a, uh, a party debate on gender issues um, where, uh, but all the leaders of the provincial parties are men. So um, it wasn't the party leaders who were there, but um, members of the party who identify as women. Um, the Greens, NDPs and Liberals were there. Um, the PCs decided not to show up. Um, and, uh, basically of those demands, um, the Greens, Liberals, and NDP all said that they support, um, our first, fourth, and third demand. So that's the, um, looking into updating FIPA. That's, um, the, uh, review of the sex ed curriculum and, um, mandatory sexual violence training for all provincial judges. Um, so one thing that's like really clear about that is the one that there wasn't really a response on um, is uh, creating a prevention strategy for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I think that's very indicative of the state of some of our conversations around sexual violence right now, of where a lot of times are willing to do things that we think are going to um, help uh, <laughs> white women um, and are, are less willing to look at the links between uh, colonialism and capitalism and resource extraction and sexual violence that happens um, in our communities. Yeah, that's that's surprising to me. If I if I were to had previously guessed which ones were were to have been supported, I would have guessed that folks would have supported the prevention strategy and less so probably the modernization of FIPA. Okay, very interesting. That's and that's also an interesting makeup. I honestly, I, I've just been actually in the Yukon for the last week and a half, which I saw that there was that the gender equality debate. I just as I said, haven't kind of had a chance to follow up. So it's interesting to learn. Um, that the leaders didn't attend. Um, was that a specific request from the organizers, like a specific request that it be folks identifying as women? My understanding is that um, it was a choice to send uh, female candidates right. rather than the party leaders. Um, but uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. Totally. No, I'll, I'll look into it. The only reason I ask, so in New Brunswick, in, in the last provincial election, there was a debate or, or a, I guess a forum, they called it a forum, organized um, by the New Brunswick Women's Council. And one of the key um, factors that they kind of set from the beginning was that they would only accept leaders. Mm -hmm. So if the party leader wouldn't attend, then their party wasn't allowed to kind of send somebody on behalf of. And um, that was an interesting choice because, again, there were, uh, were five parties and only one um, was led by a woman. Mm -hmm. So, it, yeah, it was really – it was a very interesting um, experience, I guess is the word I'll use, um, <laughs> to kind of have that dialogue and see that dialogue happen between, again, folks that – really lack significantly a diverse lived experience and particularly um, relating to issues of gender equality. But uh, interesting. I'm excited to dig in a bit more to see kind of what the debate looked like. Mm -hmm. um, but back, yeah, back into those asks. So those seem to me like very kind of universal 
um, asks that, as you kind of mentioned, could really be applied across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, are these the types of asks that folks in that, I guess, yeah, folks across the country are kind of looking at and asking um, when they have those opportunities within their, um, I guess, relations with their provincial counterparts? For sure. Um, I think these are conversations that we're seeing happen at grassroots levels across the country already. Um, And this is just us kind of consolidating them. And because the provincial election is happening here, that's where we're we're going. But um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of sexual violence work to be done at the provincial level that um, I think, well, education, for one, obviously, is regulated provincially and that in itself um, encapsulates a lot. Um, And I think one of the things that we're trying to um, make clear is just the importance that provincial politics actually plays in um, day-to-day uh, kind of anti-sexual violence work that happens on campuses, but also off of campuses as well. Um, and making sure that it is an issue that gets talked about at the provincial level, um, for sure. Yeah, totally. It's hugely important. Cause again, like you said, those kind of regulations and laws are set at the provincial level. So, um, without that kind of acknowledgement and buy-in from the per like from yeah provincial governments across across the country, it's unlikely that there will be significant movement. Um, yeah, I guess I'd just maybe ask kind of any any barriers, I guess, that you folks feel that you're facing in having these conversations, whether it's on campus or, or at the provincial level, um, both, I guess, barriers as far as, um, you know, you mentioned some interactions with um, whether it's administrators, mm-hmm. et cetera, or just, you know, barriers around the ways that laws are written and things like that. Yeah. Broadly <laughs> barriers. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, the biggest, the absolute biggest barrier we have is institutional accountability. And I have two examples of what that looks like. So the first one is basically that there is actually across the country, although there's five provinces that have provincial campus anti-sexual violence legislation, there is nowhere in the country proper oversight or accountability mechanisms at the provincial or federal levels that exist to ensure that post-secondary institutions actually properly uphold the policies and procedures that they have in place. So we know of, for example, post-secondary institutions that have policies that look amazing on paper, um, but they don't at all follow what's written on it um, or actively discourage survivors from using the policy. Um, And there's actually little to no recourse for students to hold their school accountable um, to basically not practicing a duty of care uh, beyond filing basically a human rights complaint, (laughs) um, which some students have in in Quebec and Ontario. And I think that more than anything shows that if students are going to the Human Rights Tribunal to try and um, hold their institutions accountable for um, not following following their own policies, that shows that we desperately need some sort of oversight mechanism. And then the second example that I have of lack of institutional accountability is this obsession that post-secondary institutions have with committees and working groups. So we hear like so many stories from student advocates, and I myself experienced this, and I'm sure you experienced this as a student advocate as well, um, that you're invited onto these committees or these working groups or these task forces um, where your demands basically are treated like thoughts and contributions. Um, And when final reports, recommendations, and policy drafts come out, you find none of your thoughts and contributions were actually reflected anywhere in the output of these committees and task force. And so I think this is because that student advocates and student survivors are constantly having these 
demands framed as thoughts and contributions. And so like I did my schooling in Montreal, so I believe very strongly in student power and I work in the labor movement now. And so I believe very strongly in people power and bargaining power. And so I think one of the main things that we need to do is give student survivors and student advocates the tools that they need to assert their demands around sexual violence in a negotiation sort of relationship with admin rather than a um, presenting our thoughts as a, as a working group kind of thing. And again, like, see, it's like all comes down to this issue of institutional accountability. And I and many others, unfortunately, have like seen and heard too many stories um, to assume institutional good faith. And so that's why we really, really are fighting for some sort of oversight and accountability measures to be implemented. Mm, yeah, that's such a great point. And again, I go back to thinking my own personal experience, like like you kind of mentioned. Um, and I, I very much saw, I would say, like so many sides. I'm not, I was going to say both, but there were more than both sides um, in, again, the implementation, the creation and implementation widely of um, sexual violence policies at the universities in New Brunswick. Um, and again, on one side at UNB before kind of in the kind of drafting implementation phase um, at UNB. And um, if I remember correctly, when we were doing that work, it would have been the only institution in New Brunswick with a policy other than Mount Allison who's hadn't been updated in like 27 years or something oh, like geez. that, uh, which like, okay, that's not a real policy anymore. Um, but then being kind of immediately on the other side, um, when I was working in the premier's office uh, in the provincial government and seeing kind of how that policy was or was not kind of working and being implemented mm -hmm. and then seeing again the other institutions bringing forward uh, policies and the accountability piece was so interesting to me and not just the accountability but kind of the process piece mm. um, was yeah like so fascinating to me but then on the other side hearing politicians when the student leaders would kind of come forth and bring um, bring these challenges or bring these issues forward um, the kind of standard response by your well if you if you just look at the legislature in New Brunswick uh, the old white men um, was basically like oh well why why like I don't understand if if there's an instance of sexual violence why won't they just call the police yeah and you're like <laughs> you're like mine's exploding right and you're like this mm -hmm. is this is this a real is this am I living reality right now? but but again like back to your point about education right like there's such a narrow understanding from from our lawmakers mm -hmm. of what sexual violence means what it looks like and what those experiences are and how it impacts folks d very differently um so yeah oh <laughs> but yeah. I'll just I'll sit here and talk all day. <laughs> But, but yeah, so I, I definitely what I guess what I'm saying is I'm hearing you. I'm hearing <laughs> you and like appreciating the work you folks are doing immensely. Thank you. And likewise, thanks for doing the work that you folks did in New Brunswick. Uh, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's a work in progress, I think. <laughs> but at least at least it's moving now, I think is um, yeah, that's I guess a win. <laughs> yeah, and I think honestly, one of the biggest wins that we have right now as well is that, like, thanks to the kind of cultural shift around these conversations that's happened, is I think a lot of us who felt really alone for a long time doing this work on our campuses 
actually like fully comprehend just like the vastness of this work that's happening across the country and that there's actually a lot of people doing this work. Um, and that is really comforting and in a really nice way um, to know that there are folks fighting the good fight um, around um, and that we can help each other out when we need and like solidarity, raw. And we can, we can slowly try and fight that white supremacist, capitalist, colonialist, ableist patriarchy that we live in. <laughs> I feel like that is the perfect note to end this conversation on. <laughs> Thank you so much for for chatting with me today. Um, where can folks find? Yeah, where can folks find you? Where can folks find you, folks? Focus, focus is one of my favorite words. So <laughs> let me reframe that. Where can folks find SFCC to find out more? So we are on all social media platforms. Um, you can find us. Our website is uh, www.sfccanada.org. Um, we are on the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, um, uh, also at SFCC Canada. Um, and yeah, you can follow us. We, we're doing lots of we're doing lots of various projects. So really, any sort of project that we're do doing on, you can um, find out about there. We also have a bi-monthly newsletter that we set out that just kind of gives updates on all our projects that people can sign up for on our website. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Femwonk. And if you loved this episode, please leave it a review and rate the episode. Thank you so much.